This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History for the 25th of October. This is edition 47. I started these podcasts back in lockdown as something to produce and to do while I was stuck at home. I've continued them, but I've decided that they will end with edition 50 in uh, a month or so's time. And in the final three episodes, rather than focusing on events from the date that the podcast is released, they will be just the best of the rest, as it were, from the book. Reportage, the Faber book of Reportage, which was edited by John Carey and published by Faber and Faber back in 1987. The 25th of October 1415 is where we're heading for a fairly long account from Jehan de Wavrin, a French knight who was at the Battle of Agincourt and At Agincourt, Henry V's exhausted army was attacked by a large French force under the constable Charles d'Aubray, and about 6,000 of the French were killed. Next day, the King of England, having left his night quarters, rode on in the usual manner, always taking the direct way towards Calais, and it was the 24th day of October, the eve of St Crispin, but he had scarcely turned out when his scouts reported that they had seen the French in large bodies guarding his road, and they were informed that they were to lodge at Rousseville and Agincourt in order to fight him on the morrow, to which the King replied that it was well. King Henry, then being apprised of this, and because the passage of the river at Blangy in Ternois was long and narrow, before crossing it made six noblemen of his vanguard divest themselves of their coats of mail and cross first to see whether the passage had no guard. They found it had none, and that there was no opposition, so the whole English army crossed with great expedition. When they'd got over and regained the road, They had gone but a little way when they perceived before them the French in great force. Wherefore King Henry made all his men dismount and put them in good order of battle, expecting to be fought on this day. And all the English were engaged in devotional exercises, praying our Lord that he would be their help, and there they remained till sunset. Similarly, The French, who could well discern the battle array of the English, expecting to fight them, put themselves in good order, put on their coats of mail, displayed banners and pennons, and made several new knights. Among those who received the order of knighthood was Philip, Count of Nevers, by Marshal Bukikai, with great number of other noble esquires, and there near Agincourt gathered all the French in a single body. When the King of England saw that it was already late, he made all his army draw towards Massoncel, which was near, but before he lay down he gave liberty to the prisoners, nobles and others, who were at that time with his army, they promising him that if the victory turned out on his side they would all return to him, and to their masters, if they were living, but if it fell to them to lose the battle, for he ever freed them from fealty and ransom. After the prisoners were thus liberated, the King of England lodged in the said town of Messoncel so near his enemies that the foremost of his vanguard saw them quite plainly, and heard them call each other by name, and make a great noise. But as for the English, never did people make less noise, for hardly did one hear them utter a word, or speak together. When the French saw that the King of England had lodged himself at Maisoncel and that they would not be fought that day, it was commanded on behalf of the King of France and his constable that each one should sleep in the place where he was. Then you might have seen banners and pennons furled round the lances and coats of mail put off, mules and trunks unpacked, and each of the lords sending their servants and harbingers into the neighbouring villages to keep seek for straw or litter to put under them that they might sleep in the same place where they were which was much beaten down by the trampling of the horses and almost all the night it ceased not to rain and there continued a great noise of pages grooms and all kinds of people such that as it is said the english could hear them plainly 
but those on their side were not heard, for during this night all that could find a priest confessed themselves. The men-at-arms tightened their armour, sharpening their aguilettes, and doing what was ever their business. The archers looked to their bows and cords and whatever was necessary for them. Then when it came to be early morning, the King of England began to hear his masses, for it was his custom to hear three every day, one after the other, and he had on every piece of his armour, except his headgear, but after the masses were said, he had brought down to him his helmet, which was very rich, and had a handsome crown of gold around it, like an imperial crown. Then when he was fully equipped, he mounted a small grey horse without spurs, and without causing any trumpet or other instruments of sound, he quietly drew his battalion from its night quarters, and there on a fine field of young corn arranged his troops. And to guard his baggage and that of his men, he appointed a gentleman with ten lances and twenty archers beside pages, who were of noble birth, and some sick, who could be no help. He formed all his men into a single body, as closely massed as he could, his men-at-arms in the middle, and all his banners pretty near each other. At each side of the men-at-arms were the archers, and there might be in all about ten thousand good fighting men, and to speak of the banners of the King of England, there were five about his own person, that is to say, the banner of the Trinity, the banner of Our Lady, the banner of St. George, the banner of St. Edward, and the banner of his own arms. Afterwards were the following banners, viz. of the Duke of Gloucester, the Duke of York, the Earl of March, the Earl of Huntingdon, the Earl of Oxford, the Earl of Kent, the Lords de Ross, Cornwall, and several others. These being arranged, the king went out along the ranks to see if nothing was wanting to the work of his army, and in passing he made fine speeches everywhere, exhorting and begging them to do well, saying that he had come into France to recover his rightful heritage, and that he had good and just cause for doing so, saying further that they could fight safely and with free heart in this quarrel, and that they should remember that they were born of the realm of England, where they had been brought up, and where their fathers, mothers, wives and children were living. Wherefore it became them to exert themselves that they might return thither with great joy and approval. And he showed them besides how his predecessors, kings of England, had gained many splendid victories over the French and caused them marvellous discomfiture. And he begged them that this day each one would assist in protecting his person and the crown of England with the honour of the kingdom. And further, he told them and explained how the French were boasting that they would cut off three fingers of the right hand of all the archers that should be taken prisoners to the end that neither man nor horse should ever again be killed with their arrows. Such exultations and many others which cannot all be written, the King of England addressed to his men. Now, we shall tell of the condition of the French, who, as it has been said, lay down on the Thursday evening on the field between Agincourt and Tramcourt, in which place, on the morning of the next day, they made their preparations and arrangements for fighting the King of England and his force that day. For on the Thursday they had chosen that spot where they bivouacked in order to fight the English there, if they tried to pass it, as this was their direct way to go to Calais. And to the royal banner of the constable, all the great lords of the gathering gladly joined their own, namely marshals, admirals, and other royal officers. And this night the French made great fires round the banner under which they were to fight. And the French were at least 50,000, with a great number of wagons, baggage, artillery, and all the appurtenances suitable to the case. They had few musical instruments, and during this night one hardly heard a single horse neigh throughout the host. I, the author of this work, know the truth about this, for I was in this assemblage on the French side. Then on the morning of the next day, that is to say Friday, St. Crispin's Day, the 25th of October, 1415, the constable and all the other officers of the King of France, the Dukes of Orléans, Bourbon, Bar and Alençon, the Counts of Eu, Richemont, Vendôme, Marle, Voldemont, Blormont, Saline, Grampe, Rousset, Don Martin, and several of all the other nobles and warriors armed themselves and issued from their bivouac. And then it was ordered by the constable and marshals of the King of France that three battalions should be formed. When the battalions of the French were thus formed, it was grand to see them, and as far as one could judge by the eye, they were in number fully six times as many as the English, and when this was done, the French sat down by companies around their banners, waiting for the approach of the English, and making their peace with one another, 
and then were laid aside many older versions conceived long ago. Some kissed and embraced each other, which it was affecting to witness, so that all quarrels and discourse which they'd had in time past were changed to great and perfect love. And there were some who breakfasted on what they had. And these Frenchmen remained thus till nine or ten o'clock in the morning, feeling quite assured that, considering their great force, the English could not escape them. However, there were at least some of the wisest who greatly feared a fight with them in open battle. Among the arrangements made on the part of the French, as I have since heard related by the eminent knights, it happened that, under the banner of the Lord of Croy, eighteen gentlemen banded themselves together of their own choice, and swore that when the two parties should come to meet, they would strive with all their might to get so near the King of England that they would beat down the crown from his head, or they would die. As they did. But before this they got so near the said king that one of them, with the lance which he had struck him on such a blow on his helmet that he knocked off one of the ornaments of his crown. But not long afterwards it only remained that the eighteen gentlemen were all dead and cut to pieces, which was a great pity. For if every one of the French had been willing thus to exert himself, it is to be believed that their affairs would have gone better on this day. And the leaders of these gentlemen were Louvelet de Massingohem and Garneau de Bonoui. The French had arranged their battalions between two small thickets, one lying close to Agincourt and the other to Tramcourt. The place was narrow and very advantageous to the English, and on the contrary, very ruinous for the French, for the said French had all had been all night on horseback, and it rained, and the pages, grooms, and others in leading about the horses had broken up the ground, which was so soft that the horses could with difficulty step out of the soil. And also the said French were so loaded with armour that they could not support themselves and move forward. In the first place they were armed with long coats of steel reaching to the knees or lower and very heavy over the leg harness. And besides plate armour also most of them had hooded helmets. Wherefore this weight of armour with the softness of the wet ground as has been said kept them as if immovable so that they could raise their clubs only with great difficulty, and with all these mischiefs, there was this, that most of them were troubled with hunger and want of sleep. There was a marvellous number of banners, and it was ordered that some of them should be furled, and it was settled among the said French that every one should shorten his lance in order that they might be stiffer when it came to fighting at close quarters. They had archers and crossbowmen enough, but they would not let them shoot, for the plain was so narrow that there was no room except for the men-at-arms. Now let us return to the English. After the parley between the two armies was finished and the delegates had returned each to their own people, the King of England, who had appointed a knight called Sir Thomas Erpingham to place his archers in front in two wings, trusted entirely to him and Sir Thomas to do his part exhorted every one to do in the name of the king, begging them to fight vigorously against the French, in order to secure and save their own lives. And thus the knight, who rode with two others only in front of the battalion, seeing that the hour was come, for all things were well arranged, threw up a baton which he held in his hand, saying, Nestroc! which means now strike, which was the signal for attack, then dismounted and joined the king, who was also on foot in the midst of his men, with his banner before him. Then the English, seeing the single signal, began suddenly to march, uttering a very loud cry, which greatly surprised the French, and when the English saw that the French did not approach them, they marched dashingly towards them in very fine order, and again raised a loud cry as they stopped to take breath. Then the English archers, who, as I have said, were in the wings, saw that they were near enough and began to send their arrows on the French with great vigour. The said archers were for the most part in their doublets, without armour, their stockings rolled up to their knees, and having hatchets and battle-axes or great swords hanging on their girdles, some were barefooted and bareheaded, others had caps of boiled leather, and others of osier, covered with harpoy or leather. Then the French, seeing the English come towards them in this fashion, placed themselves in order, every one under his banner, their helmets on their heads. The constable, the marshal, the admirals and the other princes earnestly exhorted their men to fight the English well and bravely. And when it came to the approach, the trumpets and clarions resounded everywhere. 
but the French began to hold down their heads, especially those who had no bucklers, for the impetuosity of the English arrows, which fell so heavily that no one durst uncover or look up. Thus they went forward a little, and then made a little retreat, but before they could come to close quarters, many of the French were disabled and wounded by the arrows, and when they came quite up to the English, they were, as has been said, so closely pressed one against another that none of them could lift their arms to strike their enemies, except that that were in the front, and those fiercely pricked with the lances which they had shortened to be more stiff than to get nearer their enemies. The French had formed a plan which I will describe. That is to say, the constable and marshal had chosen ten or twelve hundred men-at-arms, of whom one party was to go by the Agincourt side, and the other on that of the Tramacourt, to break the two wings of the English archers. But when it came to close quarters, there were but six score left of the band of Sir Clunet de Brabant, who had the charge of the undertaking on the Tramacourt side. Sir William de Saveuse, a very brave knight, took the Agincourt side with about 300 lances and with two others only he advanced before the rest, who all followed and struck into these English archers who had their stakes fixed in front of them, but these had little hold on such soft ground. So the said Sir William and his two companions pressed on boldly, but their horses stumbled among the stakes and they were speedily slain by the archers, which was a great pity. And most of the rest, through fear, gave way and fell back into their vanguard, to whom they were a great hindrance, and they opened their ranks in several places and made them fall back and lose their footing in some land newly sown, for their horses had been so wounded by the arrows that the men could no longer manage them. Thus, by these principally, and by this adventure, the vanguard of the French was thrown into disorder, and men-at-arms without number began to fall, and their horses, feeling the arrows coming upon them, took to flight before the enemy, and following their example, many of the French turned and fled. Soon afterwards, the English archers, seeing the vanguard thus shaken, issued from behind their stockade, threw away their bows and quivers, then took their swords, hatchets, mallets, axes, falcon bait, beaks and other weapons and pushing into the places where they saw these breaches struck down and killed these frenchmen without mercy and never ceased to kill till the said vanguard which had fought little or not at all was completely overwhelmed and these went on striking right and left till they came upon the second battalion which was behind the advance guard and there the king personally threw himself into the fight with his men-at-arms and there came suddenly Duke Antony of Brabant, who had been summoned by the King of France, and had so hastened for fear of being late that his people could not follow him, for he would not wait for them, but took a banner from his trumpeters, made a hole in the middle of it, and dressed himself as if in armour. But he was soon killed by the English. Then was renewed the struggle and great slaughter of the French, which offered little defence, for because of their cavalry above mentioned, their order of battle was broken, and then the English got among them more and more, breaking up the first two battalions in many places, beating down and slaying cruelly and without mercy. But some rose again by the help of their grooms, who led them out to the melee, for the English, who were intent on killing and making prisoners, pursued nobody. And then... All the rearguard being still on horseback, and seeing the condition of the first two battalions turned and fled, except some of the chiefs and leaders of those routed ones. And it is to be told that while the battalion was in rout, the English had taken some good French prisoners. And there came tidings to the King of England that the French were attacking his people at the rear, and that they had already taken his sumptus and other baggage, which enterprise was conducted by an esquire named Robert de Bonouy, who was with whom were Riflard de Plamas, Isambard d'Agincourt, and some other men at arms, accompanied by about six hundred peasants, who carried off the said baggage and many horses of the English while their keepers were occupied in the fight, about which robbery the king was greatly troubled. Nevertheless, he ceased not to pursue his victory, and his people took many good prisoners, by whom they expected all to become rich, and they took from them nothing but their head armour. At the hour when the English feared the least, there befell them a perilous adventure, for a great gathering of the rearguard and centre division of the French, in which were many Breton, Gascon and Poitevin, rallied with some standards and ensigns and returned in good order and marched vigorously against the conquerors of the field. 
When the king of England perceived them coming thus, he caused it to be published that every one that had a prisoner should immediately kill him, which those who had any were unwilling to do, for they expected to get great ransoms for them. But when the king was informed of this, he appointed a gentleman with two hundred archers whom he commanded to go through the host and kill all the prisoners, whoever they might be. This esquire, without delay or objection, fulfilled the command of his sovereign lord, which was a most pitiable thing, for in cold blood all the nobility of France was beheaded and inhumanely cut to pieces, and all through this accursed company a sorry set compared with the noble captive chivalry, who, when they saw that the English were ready to receive them, all immediately turned and fled, each to save his own life. Many of the cavalry escaped, but of those on foot there were many among the dead. When the king of England saw that he was the master of the field and had got the better of his enemies, he humbly thanked the giver of victory and he had good cause for of his people there died on the spot only about 1,600 men of all ranks, among whom was the Duke of York, his great uncle, about whom he was very sorry. Then the king collected on that place some of those most intimate with him and inquired the name of a castle which he perceived to be nearest and they said, Agincourt. It is right, then, he said, that this our victory should forever bear the name Agincourt, for every battle ought to be named after the fortress nearest to the place where it was fought. When the King of England and his army had been there a good while, waiting on the field and guarding the honour of the victory more than four hours, and no one whatever, French or other, appeared to see them any injury, seeing that it rained and evening was drawing on, he returned to his quarters at Maisoncel. And the English archers busied themselves in turning over the dead under whom they found some good prisoners still alive, of whom the Duke of Orléans was one, and they carried the armour of the dead by horse loads to their quarters. And they found on the field the Duke of York and the Earl of Oxford, whom they carried into their camp, and the French did little injury to the said English, except in the matter of these two. When evening came, the King of England, being informed that there was so much baggage accumulated at the lodging places, caused it to be proclaimed everywhere with sound of trumpet that no one should load himself with more armour than was necessary for his own body, because they were not yet wholly out of danger from the King of France. And this night, the corpses of the two English princes, that is to say the Duke of York and the Earl of Oxford, were boiled in order to separate the bones and carry them to England. And this being done, the king further ordered that all the armour that was over and above what his people were wearing, with all the dead bodies on their side, should be carried into a barn or house, and there burned together. And it was done, according to the king's command. Next day, which was Saturday, the king of England and his whole army turned out from Messoncel and passed through the scene of slaughter, where they killed all the French that they found still living, except some they took prisoners. And King Henry stood there, looking on the pitiable condition of those dead bodies which were quite naked, for during the night they had been stripped as well by the English as by the peasantry. Now having announced that we're coming to the end of the Witnesses of History series, this episode, if you'll forgive me, is going to be at least twice as long as all the other episodes, because after that one long account, we now have another one, 439 years to the day later, William Howard Russell's report of the Battle of Balaclava and the charge of the Light Brigade. If the exhibition of the most brilliant valour, of the excess of courage and of a daring which would have reflected lustre on the best days of chivalry can afford full consolation for the disaster of today, we can have no reason to regret the melancholy loss which we sustained in a contest with a savage and barbarian enemy. I shall proceed to describe to the best of my power what occurred under my own eyes and to state the facts which I have heard from men whose veracity is unimpeachable, reserving to myself the exercise of the right of private judgment in making public and in suppressing the details of what occurred on this memorable day. It will be remembered that in a letter sent by last mail from this, it was mentioned that 11 battalions of Russian infantry had crossed the Chinaya River and that they threatened the rear of our position and our communication with Balaclava. Their bands could be heard playing at night by travellers along the Balaclava road to the camp, but they showed but little during the day, 
and kept up among the gorges and mountain passes through which the road to Inkerman, Simferopol, and the southeast of the Crimea wind towards the interior. It will be recollected also that the position we occupied in reference to Balaclava was supposed to be, by most people, to be very strong, even impregnable. Our lines were formed by natural mountain slopes in the rear, along with which the French had made very formidable entrenchments. Below these entrenchments, and very nearly in a right line across the valley beneath, are four conical hillocks, one rising above the other as they recede from our lines. On the top of each of these hills, the Turks had thrown up earthen redoubts, defended by 250 men each, and armed with two or three guns, some heavy ship guns lent by us to them, with one artilleryman in each redoubt to look after them. These hills crossed the valley of Balaclava at the distance of about two and a half miles from the town. Supposing the spectator then to take his stand on one of the heights forming the rear of our camp before Sebastopol, he could see the town of Balaclava, with its scanty shipping, its narrow strip of water and its old forts on his right hand, immediately below he would behold the valley and the plain of Course Meadowland, occupied by our cavalry tents, and stretching from the base of the ridge on which he stood to the foot of the formidable heights on the other side, he would see the French trenches, lined with zouave, a few feet beneath, and distant from him on the slope of a hill. A Turkish redoubt, lower down, then another in the valley, then in a line with it, some angular earthworks, then, in succession, the other two redoubts up Canrobert's Hill. At the distance of two or two and a half miles across the valley, there is an abrupt rocky mountain range of most irregular and picturesque formation, covered with scanty brushwood here and there, or rising into barren pinnacles and plateau of rock. In outline and appearance, this position of the landscape is wonderfully like the Trossachs. A patch of blue sea is caught in between the overhanging cliffs of Balaclava as they close in the entrance to the harbour on the right. The camps of the marines, pitched on the hillsides more than 1,000 feet above the level of the sea, is opposite to you as your back is turned to Sebastopol and your right side towards Balaclava. On the road leading up the valley, close to the entrance of the town and beneath these hills, is the encampment of the 93rd Highlanders. The cavalry lines are nearer to you below and are some way in advance of the Highlanders and nearer to the town than the Turkish redoubts. The valley is crossed here and there by small waves of land. On your left, the hills and rocky mountain ranges gradually close in towards the course of the Chennai, till at three or four miles distant from Balaclava, the valley is swallowed up in a mountain gorge and deep ravines, above which rise tier after tier of desolate whitish rock, garnished now and then by bits of scanty herbage, and spreading away towards the east and south, where they attain the alpine dimensions of Shatiadar. It is very easy for an attempt at the, for an enemy at the Belbeck or in command of the road of Mackenzie's farm in command Simferopol or Bakizurai to debouch through these gorges any time upon this plain from the neck of the valley or to march from Sebastopol by the Chenea and to advance along it towards Balaclava till checked by the Turkish redoubts on the southern side or the fire from the French works on the northern. That is the side which in relation to the valley of Balaclava forms the rear of our position. At half past seven o'clock this morning, an orderly came galloping into the headquarters camp from Balaclava with the news that at dawn a strong corps of Russian horse supported by guns and battalions of infantry had marched into the valley and had already nearly dispossessed the Turks of the redoubt number one, that on Canrobert's Hill, which is farthest from our lines, and that they were opening fire on the redoubts two, three and four, which would speedily be in their hands unless the Turks offered a stouter resistance than they had already done. Orders were dispatched to Sir George Cathcart and to His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge to put their respective divisions, the 4th and 1st, in motion for the scene of action and intelligence of the advance of the Russians was also furnished to General Canrobert Immediately, on receipt of the news, the general commanded General Bosquet to get the 3rd Division under arms and sent a strong body of artillery and some 200 chasseurs d'Afrique to assist us in holding the valley. Sir Colin Campbell, who was in command of Balaclava, had drawn up the 93rd Highlanders a little in front of the road into the town at the first news of the advance of the enemy. 
The Marines on the Heights got under arms, the Siemens batteries and Marines batteries on the Heights close to the town were manned and the French artillerymen and the Zouave prepared for action along their lines. Lord Lucan's little camp was the scene of great excitement. The men had not had time to water their horses, they had not broken their fast from the evening of the day before and had barely saddled at the first blast of the trumpet when they were drawn up on the slope behind the redoubts in front of the camp to operate on the enemy's squadrons. It was soon evident that no reliance was to be placed on the Turkish infantrymen or artillerymen. All the stories we'd heard about their bravery behind stone walls and earthworks proved how differently the same or similar people fight under different circumstances. When the Russians advanced, the Turks fired a few rounds at them, got frightened at the distance of their supports in the rear, looked round, received a few shots and shell, and then bolted and fled with an agility quite at variance with the commonplace notions of oriental deportment on the battlefield. But Turks on the Danube are very different beings from Turks in the Crimea, as it appears that the Russians of Sebastopol are not at all like the Russians of Silistria. Soon after eight, Lord Raglan and his staff turned out and cantered towards the rear of our position. The booming of artillery, the splattering of roll of musketry, were heard rising from the valley, drowning the roar of the siege guns in front before Sebastopol. As I rode in the direction of the firing over the thistles and large stones which cover the undulating plain which stretches away towards Balaclava on a level with the summit of the ridges above it, I observed a French Light Infantry Regiment, the 25th, 27th I think, advancing with admirable care and celerity from our right towards the ridge near the tra- Telegraph House, which was already lined with companies of French infantry, while mounted officers scampered along its broken outline in every direction. General Bosquet, a stout, soldier-like-looking man who reminds one of the old genre of French generals as depicted at Versailles, followed with his staff and a small escort of a sar at a gallop. Faint white clouds rose here and there above the hill from the cannonade below. Never did the painter's eye rest upon a more beautiful scene than I beheld from the ridge. The fleecy vapours still hung round the mountaintops and mingled with the ascending volumes of smoke. The patch of sea sparkled freshly in the rays of the morning sun, but its light was eclipsed by the flashes which gleamed from the masses of armed men below. Looking to the left, towards the gorge, we beheld six compact masses of Russian infantry which had just debouched from the mountain passes near the Chenea and was slowly advancing with solemn stateliness up the valley. Immediately in their front was a regular line of artillery of at least 20 pieces strong. Two batteries of light guns were already a mile in advance of them and were playing with energy on the redoubts from which feeble puffs of smoke came at long intervals. Behind the guns in front of the infantry were enormous bodies of cavalry. They were in six compact squares, three on each flank, moving down on echelon towards us and the valley was lit up with the blaze of their sabres and lance points and gay accoutrements. In the front, and extended along the intervals between each battery of guns, were clouds of mounted skirmishers wheeling and whirling in front of their march like autumn leaves tossed by the wind. The zouaves close to us were lying like tigers in the spring, which, ready rifles in hand, hidden chin deep by the earthworks which were along the line of these ridges on our rear, But the quick-eyed Russians were manoeuvring on the other side of the valley and did not expose their columns to attack. Below the Zouave we could see the Turkish gunners in the redoubts, all in confusion, and the shells burst over them. Just as I came up, the Russians had carried number one redoubt, the farthest and most elevated of all, and their horsemen were chasing the Turks across the interval which lay between it and redoubt number two. At that moment the cavalry under Lord Lucan were formed in glittering masses. The light brigade under Lord Cardigan in advance of the heavy brigade under Brigadier General Scarlett in reserve. They were drawn up just in front of their encampment and were concealed from the view of the enemy by a slight wave in the plain. Considerably to the rear of their right, the 93rd Highlanders were drawn up in line in front of the approach to Balaclava. Above and behind on the heights, the marines were visible through the glass, drawn up under arms, and the gunners could be seen ready in the earthworks in which were placed the heavy ship's guns. 
The 93rd had originally been advanced somewhat more than into the plain, but the instant the Russians got possession of the first redoubt, they opened fire on them from our own guns, which inflicted some injury, and Sir Colin Campbell retired his men to a better position. Meantime, the enemy advanced his cavalry rapidly. To our inexpressible disgust, we saw the Turks in Redoubt Number 2 fly at their reproach. They ran in scattered groups across towards Redoubt 3 and towards Balaclava, but the horse hoof of the Cossacks was too quick for them, and sword and lance were busily plied among the retreating band. The yells of the pursuers and pursued were plainly audible. As the lancers and light cavalry of the Russians advanced, they gathered up their skirmishers with, with great speed and in excellent order, the shifting trails of men which played all over the valley like moonlight on water contracted, gathered up, and the little peloton in a few moments became a solid column. Then up came their guns, in rushed their gunners to the abandoned redoubt, and the guns of number two redoubt soon played with deadly effect upon the spirit dispirited defenders of number three. Two or three shots in return from the earthworks, and all is silent. The Turks swarm over the earthworks and run in confusion towards the town, firing their muskets at the enemy as they run. Again, the solid column of cavalry opens like a fan and resolves itself into the long spray of skirmishers. It laps the flying Turks, steel flashes in the air, and down go the poor Muslim quivering on the plain, split through fares and musket guard to the chin and breast belt. There is no support for them. It is evident the Russians have been too quick for us. The Turks have been too quick also, for they have not held their redoubts long enough to enable us to bring them help. In vain, the naval guns on the heights fire on the Russian cavalry. The distance is too great for shot or shell to reach. In vain, the Turkish gunners in the earthen batteries, which are placed among the French entrenchments, strive to protect their flying countrymen. Their shot fly wide and short of the swarming masses. The Turks betake themselves towards the Highlanders, where they check their flight and form into companies on the flanks of the Highlanders. As the Russian cavalry on the left of their line crown the hill, across the valley they perceive the Highlanders drawn up at the distance of some half-mile, calmly awaiting their approach. They halt, and squadron after squadron flies up from the rear till they have a body of some 1,500 men along the ridge, lancers and dragoons and hussars. Then they move on echelon into bodies with another in reserve. The cavalry, who have been pursuing the Turks on the right, are coming up the ridge beneath us, which conceals our cavalry from view. The heavy brigade in advance is drawn up in two columns. The first column consists of the Scots Greys and of their old companions in glory, the Enniskillings, the second of the 4th Royal Irish, of the 5th Dragoon Guards and of the 1st Royal Dragoons. The Light Cavalry Brigade is on their left in two lines also. The silence is oppressive. Beneath, between the cannon bursts, one can hear the champing of bits and the clink of sabres in the valley below. The Russians on their left drew breath for a moment and then in one grand line dashed at the Highlanders. The ground flies beneath their horses' feet, gathering speed at every stride. They dash on towards that thin red streak topped with a line of steel. The Turks fire a volley at 800 yards and run. As the Russians come within 600 yards, down goes that line of steel in front and out rings a rolling volley of minier musketry. The distance is too great. The Russians are not checked, but still sweep onwards with the whole force of horse and man through the smoke here and there, knocked over by the shot of our batteries above. With breathless suspense, everyone awaits the bursting of the wave upon the line of Gallic rock. But ere they came within 150 yards, another deadly volley flashes from the levelled rifles and carries death and terror into the Russians. They wheel about, open files right and left, and fly back faster than they came. Bravo, Highlanders! Well done, shout the excited spectators. But events thicken. The Highlanders and their splendid front are soon forgotten. Men scarcely have a moment to think of this fact that the 93rd never altered their formation to receive that tide of horsemen. No, said Sir Colin Campbell. I did not think it worthwhile to form them even four deep. The ordinary British line, too deep, was quite sufficient to repel the attack of those Muscovite chevaliers. Our eyes were, however, turned in a moment on our own cavalry. We saw Brigadier General Scarlett ride along in front of his massive squadrons. 
The Russians, evidently corps d'élite, their light blue jackets embroidered with silver lace, were advancing on their left at an easy gallop towards the brow of the hill. A forest of lances glistened in their rear, and several squadrons of grey-coated dragoons moved up quickly to support them as they reached the summit. The instant they came in sight, the trumpets of our cavalry gave out the warning blast which told us all that in another moment we would see the shock of battle beneath our very eyes. Lord Raglan, all his staff and escort and groups of officers, the Zouave, the French generals and officers and bodies of French infantry on the height were spectators of the scene as though they were looking on the stage from the boxes of a theatre. Nearly everyone dismounted and sat down and not a word was said. The Russians advanced down the hill at a slow canter, which they changed to a trot and at last nearly halted. The first line was at least double the length of ours. It was three times as deep. Behind them was a similar line, equally strong and compact. They evidently despised their insignificant-looking enemy. But their time was come. The trumpets rang out through the valley, and the greys and Enniskinens went right at the centre of the Russian cavalry. The space between them was only a few hundred yards. It was scarce enough to let the horses gather way, nor had the men quite space sufficient for the full play of their sword arms. The Russian line brings forward each wing as our cavalry advance and threaten to annihilate them as they pass on. Turning a little to their left so as to meet the Russians' right, the greys rush on with a cheer that thrills every heart. The wild shout of the Enniskillens rises through the air at the same moment. As lightning flashes through a cloud, the greys and Enniskillens pierce through the dark masses of the Russians. The shock was but for a moment. There was a clash of steel and a light play of sword blades in the air, and then the greys and the redcoats disappear in the midst of the shaken and quivering columns. In another moment we see them merging and dashing on with diminished numbers and in broken order against the second line which advances against them to retrieve the fortune of the charge. It was a terrible moment. God help them, they're lost, was the exclamation of more than one man and the thought of many. With unabated fire, the noble hearts dashed at their enemy. It was a fight of heroes. The first line of Russians, which had been smashed utterly by our charge and had fled off at one flank and towards the centre, were coming back to swallow up our handful of men. By sheer steel and sheer courage, Enniskillen and Scott were winning their desperate way right through the enemy's squadrons, and already grey horses and redcoats had appeared right at the rear of the second mass when... With irresistible force, like one bolt from a blow, the first royals, the fourth dragoons and the fifth dragoon guards rushed at the remnants of the first line of the enemy, went through it as though it were made of pasteboard and dashing on the second body of Russians as they were still disordered by the terrible assault of the greys and their companions, put them to utter rout. The Russian horse, in less than five minutes after it met our dragoons, was flying with all its speed before a force certainly not half its strength. A cheer burst from every lip. In the enthusiasm, officers and men took off their caps and shouted with delight, and thus keeping up the scenic character of their position, they clapped their hands again and again. And now occurred the melancholy catastrophe which fills us all with sorrow. It appears that the Quartermaster General, Brigadier Airy, thinking that the light cavalry had not gone far enough in front where the enemy's horse had fled, gave an order in writing to Captain Nolan, 15th Hussars, to take to Lord Lucan, directing his lordship, to advance his cavalry nearer the enemy. A braver soldier than Captain Nolan the army did not possess. He was known to all his men of the service for his entire devotion to his profession, and his name must be familiar to all who take interest in our cavalry, for its excellent work published a year ago on our drill and system of remount and breaking horses. I had the pleasure of his acquaintance, and I know he entertained the most exalted opinions at respecting the capabilities of the English horse soldier. Properly led, the British Hussar and Dracoon could be, in his mind, break square, take batteries, ride over columns of infantry, and pierce any other cavalry in the world, as if they were made of straw. He thought they had not the opportunity of doing all that was in their power, and that they had missed even such chances as they had offered to them. That, in fact, they were in some measure disgraced. A matchless rider and a first-rate swordsman, he held in contempt, I'm afraid, even grape and canister. He rode off with his orders to Lord Lucan. He's now dead and gone. God forbid, 
I should cast a shade on the brightness of his honour, but I am bound to state what I am told occurred when he reached his lordship. I should premise that, as the Russian cavalry retired, their infantry fell back towards the head of the valley, leaving men in three of the redoubts they had taken and abandoning the fourth. They also placed some guns on the heights over their position on the left of the gorge. Their cavalry joined the reserves and drew up in six solid divisions in an oblique line across the entrance to the gorge. Six battalions of infantry were placed behind them and about 30 guns were drawn up along their line, while masses of infantry were also collected on the hills behind the redoubts on our right. Our cavalry had moved up to the ridge across the valley on our left as the ground was broken in front and had halted in the order I have already mentioned. When Lord Lucan received the order from Captain Nolan and had read it, he asked, We are told, Where are we to advance to? Captain Nolan pointed with his finger to the line of Russians and said, There are the enemy, and there are the guns, sir, before them. It is your duty to take them, or words to that effect, according to the statements made since his death. Lord Lucan, with reluctance, gave the order to Lord Carnegie to advance upon the guns, conceiving that his orders compelled him to do so. The noble earl, though he did not shrink, also saw the fearful odds against him. Don Quixote, in his tilt against the windmill, was not near so rash and reckless as the gallant fellows who prepared without a thought to rush on almost certain death. It is a maxim of war that cavalry never act without support, that infantry should be close at hand when cavalry carry guns, as the effect is only instantaneous, and that it is necessary to have on the flank of a line of cavalry some squadrons in column, the attack on the flank being most dangerous. The only support our light cavalry had was the reserve of heavy cavalry at a greater distance behind them, the infantry and guns being far in the rear. There were no squadrons in column at all, and there was a plain, plain to charge over before the enemy's guns were reached of a mile and a half in length. At ten past eleven, our light cavalry brigade rushed to the front. They numbered as follows, as well as I could ascertain. Fourth Light Dragoons, 118 men. Eighth Irish Hussars, 104. Eleventh Prince Albert Hussars, 110. The 13th Light Dragoons, 130. The 17th Lancers, 145. Total, 607 sabres. The whole brigade scarcely made one effective regiment, according to the numbers of Continental Armies, and yet it was more than we could spare. As they passed towards the front, the Russians opened on them from the guns in the redoubts on the right with volleys of musketry and rifles. They swept proudly past, glittering in the morning sun in all the pride and splendour of war. We could hardly believe the evidence of our senses. Surely that handful of men were not going to charge an army in position. Alas, it was but too true. Their desperate valour knew no bounds, and far indeed was it removed from its so-called better part, discretion. They advanced in two lines, quickening their pace as they closed towards the enemy. A more fearful spectacle was never witnessed than by those who, without the power to aid, beheld their heroic countrymen rushing to the arms of death. At the distance of 1,200 yards, the whole line of the enemy belched forth from 30 iron mouths, a flood of smoke and flame through which hissed the deadly bulls. Their flight was marked by instant gaps in our ranks, by dead men and horses, by steeds flying wounded or riderless across the plain. The first line was broken. It was joined by the second. They never halted or checked their speed an instant, with diminished ranks, thinned by some thirty guns, which the Russians had laid with the most deadly accuracy, with a halo of flashing steel above their heads, and with a cheer which was many a noble fellow's death cry. They flew into the smoke of the batteries, but ere they were lost from view, the plain was strewed with their bodies and with the carcasses of horses. They were exposed to an oblique fire from the batteries on the hills on both sides as well as to a direct fire of musketry. Through the clouds of smoke we could see their sabres flashing as they rode up to the guns and dashed between them, cutting down the gunners as they stood. The blaze of their steel, as an officer standing near me said, was like the turn of a shoal of mackerel. We saw them riding through the guns, as I have said. 
To our delight, we saw them returning after breaking through a column of Russian infantry and scattering them like chaff when the flank fire of the battery on the hills swept them down, scattered and broken as they were. Wounded men and dismounted troopers flying towards us told the sad tale. Demigods could not have done what they'd failed to do. At the very moment when they were about to retreat, an enormous mass of lancers was hurled upon their flank. Colonel Shule of the 8th Hussars saw the danger and rode his few men straight at them, cutting his way through with fearful loss. The other regiments turned and engaged in a desperate encounter. With courage too great almost for credence, they were breaking their way through the columns which enveloped them, when there took place an act of atrocity without parallel in the modern warfare of civilised nations. The Russian gunners, when the storm of cavalry passed, returned to their guns. They saw their own cavalry mingled with the troopers who had just ridden over them, and to the eternal disgrace of the Russian name, the miscreants poured a murderous volley of grape and canister on the mass of struggling men and horses, mingling friend and foe in one common ruin. It was as much as our heavy cavalry brigade could do to cover the retreat of the miserable remnants of that band of heroes as they returned to the place that had so lately quitted in all the pride of life. At twenty-five to twelve, not a British soldier, except the dead and dying, was left in front of these bloody Muscovite guns. Our loss, as far as we could be ascertained, in killed, wounded and missing at two o'clock today, was as follows went into action 607, returned from action 198, the loss 409. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org.